0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Talk Money Uncut, where as a Talk Money member, you get access to full interviews, some even unreleased. When we do the narrative episodes, we do a lot of editing. So we only use a few minutes of each interview that we do for that specific episode. With our uncut episodes, sometimes you'll be listening to a full interview, which can be over an hour long. There's a ton of amazing insights and learnings that you didn't hear before. In this episode of Talk Money Uncut, I speak with entrepreneur Kenneth Quo. Kenneth loves sneakers, so much so he paid his way through NYU undergrad by flipping sneakers. There's so many incredible lessons here, from how margins and arbitrage work to scaling a business using technology. We dive deep on the Jordan brand and sneaker culture. We actually recorded this interview the days before New York shut down due to the pandemic, so I put it in the archives hoping to release it at a later date. It's one of the most fun conversations I've had, and I'm really excited to share it with you. Let's get started.
1: My name is Kenneth Quote. I build artificial intelligence, but everything good in my life has come to me because of sneakers. And tell me
0: how you fell in love with sneakers. Do you remember the moment that that happened?
1: Yeah, man. It's crazy. So I grew up in LA, but not the nice part of LA. (laughs) East LA, right? So, but very much like part of that sneaker culture that like west coast sneaker culture um always playing ball as a kid i really fell in love with it just being around that environment and then getting jordans to play ball in and what was that environment what was sneaker culture back then that's crazy when i first started like when i was a like basically i was a child right like you could walk into the store, walk into a foot or walk into a champs, whatever. And you just find pairs on shelves. You could just walk in and cop whatever you wanted, right? So we'd get one pair of shoes uh, every year you know, for back to school. And Jordan brand based in Nike basically timed certain drops for back to school. A lot of kids and a lot of people, unless they're like OG sneakerheads, they don't remember that a lot, but you used to get the East Bay calendar mailed to you and you would like flip through it and you would see, oh, September or August or whatever. These are the shoes that are dropping and you (laughs) you would circle them on, (laughs) and you just wait and wait and wait for back to school and you just get them because my family didn't have any money to get me multiple pairs of sneakers. They really didn't even have money to get me the Jordans that I wanted, right? So you're going to pay less or you're going to these other discount shoe stores. Do Do you remember what your first pair was that you bought? So, really, the two pairs of shoes that really started it all for me were the Jordan 7 Bordeaux and the Jordan 3 Black Cements. I just saw them. Oh, fuck, I got to have these. The Jordan 3 silhouette, the Black Cements, are considered one of the greatest shoes of all time. The Jordan 7s, they're kind of eh, because they weren't really associated with any big moment for Jordan right? You know, the threes are famously when he did the dunk from the free throw line, right? And, you know, the 14s are like the last shots, right? Jordan 14, last shot he ever took. Supposedly up until that point, he ever took. But the sevens are just kind of like a whatever shoe.
0: And was it the Jordans that sparked this whole culture,
1: specifically? So, uh, kind of. If you take a look at what sneaker culture was back before Michael Jordan, it's a lot of Pumas, Right, And they were always kind of associated with athletes, right? So you got the Clive Frasier's basically, right? And play ball in the Clive oh, And then you have the Converse, Larry Bird, the weapons, right? That was the big shoe that everyone played ball in. It wasn't really until Jordan and Nike came around that sneaker culture really started in sort of the way that we see sneaker culture today. And
0: what is sneaker culture? <laughs>
1: It's like a lot of hype. I think when people think about, re- like about sneaker culture nowadays, it's impossible to dissociate sneaker culture with resale culture or from resale culture. I think nowadays you think of all of these sort of tangential industries that have popped up around basketball shoes, streetwear with your Supremes and the different collaborations that you have with Travis Scott and the artists like with Cactus Jacks. And then you have the secondary resale market that sits on top of all of your retail MSRP sales for sneakers.
0: Let's go back to your actual, the first pair or the first time you waited in line for a pair of sneakers. Yeah. Where were you and what was the store? Who did you go with? Can you you paint that whole picture
1: for us? This is maybe eight or nine years into my sneaker career. So... One of my one of my favorite one of my fondest memories uh, of like camping out and getting sneakers was Christmas 2010. So I had come back for winter break. So I went to NYU, and co- went back to LA for winter break. And back then, the All Star Game was a big deal for sneaker drops because you had all these signature athletes. You had the LeBrons, Kobe's, and, and I guess really that was it. But Jordans would sprinkle in some, you know. Uh, collab or some re-release during all-star weekend but it really was lebron and kobe the two signature athletes for nike at the time and they would always drop amazing sneakers amazing colorways on and around christmas so it had leaked out on the internet and through some forums that the kobe six grinches were going to come out and it's this beautiful the colorway is technical green apple And, and what's a colorway colorway is the actual color of the shoe so there's to to break down the sort of sneaker terminology there's the silhouette it's the construction of the sneaker it's the actual look of the model then the colorway is how each part of the shoe is colored so toe box heel heel tab tongue etc the different construction pieces of the shoe that's how that's the color assigned to each of the the pieces so The Kobe 6 is, I think, one of the most beautiful shoes ever created. It's this just – it's a low-top silhouette. And what makes it so unique is they took the python snakeskin scales, the raised scales, and just put that all over the upper of the shoe. Oh, God, it's such a beautiful shoe. And that's a
0: representation of Black Mamba. Black
1: Mamba, exactly. And uh, it was in this just crazy colorway. It's the Grinch colorway. It's all green. That was really when Kobe started embracing the you know mama mentality on the Grinch that stole Christmas. Really leaned into the whole on this adversarial fuck, <laughs> right? And uh, I remember just seeing it and just getting so hyped up. And we waited in line. And this is—I had just spent my first winter in New York. Yeah, I was sick, so <laughs> incredibly sick. But we waited outside of the Foot Locker. In L.A.? In L.A. Where in L.A.? Pasadena. Pasadena Foot Locker, right on Colorado Boulevard. And we literally waited starting at 5 p.m. the previous day until the day that they, until they dropped. So what was at, that, 12
0: to, hours or 24 hours?
1: We got there at 5 p.m. I think we were the... Uh, me and a couple buddies, we got there at 5 p.m. and we waited until 10 a.m. the next day when they basically went to the
0: And did you have chairs? Did you <laughs> yeah. snacks? Yeah, yeah. What did you do for that period of time together?
1: <laughs> yeah, we're just sitting on lawn chairs. Like, you bring a lawn chair, you bring blankets. For me, I brought a ton of ton of meds, like Tylenol, NyQuil, DayQuil. Well, because you're sick. The whole thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just kind of weather it. You just kind of are part of this really fanatical sub-community that you see the same faces at every drop basically so you get to be kind of a family and you get to know these people ask how their family is you know that kind of stuff there's like a genuine camaraderie with the line standers people that waited in line for these drops you know you bring a speaker you play music shoot the shit and what happens at 10 a.m. when they open the door (laughs) oh my god this is madness is what it do,
0: is <laughs> do all your does a camaraderie stop and you all rush into the
1: store and get what you can it depends we would always do pasadena because it was generally more calm uh, it, but you get people stabbing each other you get people yeah this is like a real thing like you get so pasadena la suburb right yeah,
0: yeah. relatively calm in comparison to have you seen something that was more
1: chaotic yeah, and I got the fuck out. <laughs> this is not current date. This is like 2000, like eight, like early aughts. Yeah. Right? So 2000, call it like 7 to 13. You know, that and nighter. that's
0: when you kind of started,
1: right? That's right, yeah. That, that's yeah. when I really was big into that culture. And
0: so growing up, not with much money, and we obviously fast forward to getting the Grinch sneakers, but when you were buying these sneakers in L.A. where you grew up, What was that like? So you're in high school at the time. Yeah. Would you be waiting the same amount of time for those sneakers and just trying to get as many as you can?
1: Yeah, for sure. So my philosophy with sneakers when I first started in the game was get your pair for free. And so what that meant is if you secured four pairs, you could resell three of them and make enough money to pay off that last shoe, right? So you're getting your pair for free. And so the economics of it works out to basically, it's $162 MSRP plus tax, $172. And right around when I started, right? So like 2006-ish, maybe even a little bit before that, Nike and Jordan brand started restricting the supply of their sneakers. They didn't want their models sitting on shelves anymore. They basically wanted to artificially create scarcity. And because of that, you get a commodity that as soon as you have it in hand basically almost doubles in value. So you have a pair of sneakers that retails for $172, including tax, and you can immediately flip that for $242 $320.
0: And and you were telling me earlier that back then you would be buying these in person at the store, waiting in line, mm-hmm. and then when you would flip them, you're on a forum and finding people to exchange these items with.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Back in the day before, like this is right when eBay was kind of starting to take off for things other than selling Beanie Babies. Um, But people were still a little bit skeptical about PayPal and online payments and online transactions. There was a lot of scamming going on. So really where a lot of sneaker deals, news and all that stuff, a lot of where that was facilitated was early internet forums. And the most famous one obviously was Nike Talk. And you would just go on and you would find people that were listing their sneakers uh, for sale or, so, you know, there's a slang for this stuff, right? So WTB is want to buy, right? FS for sale, all that kind of stuff, like just the, the shorthand lingo. Uh, I can kind of think of resale in terms of stages of development or like ages. So in its infancy, sneaker resale was facilitated almost always in person or if you were shipping it was super risky why was it risky because you never know if you get your product so if you paid someone for the sneakers you had no guarantee that you would ever receive them right right you pay them 220 right wear the sneakers right so it was always kind of a crapshoot a lot of what was happening was facilitated in person. So the stock that you had access to was basically restricted to the geography that you lived in, right? So if you lived in Los Angeles, you're basically only doing meetups sure. with other people in Los Angeles or like the surrounding area. So can you describe a- an event where, tell me from start to finish how it went down? So this wasn't necessarily a sale, but this is the, it's the same mechanics. It's called a size swap, meaning you got a pair of shoes and they were the they were the wrong size. They sold out of your size, so you got another size instead. And you immediately you immediately hit the forums looking for size swap. This was <laughs> the Concord's had just retro jo- the Jordan Eleven Concord's. Okay, um, which is but what does that mean? Retro retro means that it re released. Okay. So I'm doing a, a size swap for the Jordan 11 Concords that dropped. Jordan has this very strict release calendar. So every Christmas, basically Christmas season, they would retro or they would create a new colorway for the Jordan 11s. Widely considered the greatest sneaker of all time. I personally don't love them, but you know that's personal taste. These are the tuxedo shoes. Yeah, that's okay. right. The tuxedo shoes. <laughs> yeah, they look like tuxedos exactly, yeah. um, with the patent leather, which yeah. I always hated because like they just get scuffed up so bad. I hate this. Those was shoes. actually, I think when Space Jam came out. No. Well, yeah. So they made a Jordan 11 Space Jam, the Space Jam colorway.
0: Was that the original Jordan 11s? No, the, the Concord's were the original Jordan okay, 11s. Okay. But okay. then
1: in the movie, Jordan wore the Space Jam. Got yeah. it. I just watched it. the other Yeah, that's <laughs> a great movie. So, with the Santa Anita Mall in Arcadia. And it was literally madness. Like there were, so the sneaker stores had told people that they were going to release it at midnight. So by about nine o'clock. And and this is a a suburb mall. Yeah. It's big. This this is where the Santa Anita racetrack is. So they have a lot of parking the entire parking lot was full of people. There were probably tens of thousands of people trying to get a pair of these shoes. It was a sea of people. It was absolute madness. People started to line up at 9 p.m. And for a midnight drop. For a midnight drop. So uh, that was a little late.
0: Yeah, that sounds late compared to what you said before.
1: Right. And it was because... I don't know why, but for whatever reason, 9 p.m. was just when a bunch of people just showed up.
0: Yeah. What time did you get there? I got there at
1: 9. Okay. Yeah. And there were police. Like, police showed up within five minutes. It's also because the San Diego Mall is, like, right next to, like, a fire station and, like, a police station. super close. Immediately, police show up. Um, Drop is postponed to tomorrow morning. Oh, no. We don't know what time they're going to open.
0: What happened? People start freaking out?
1: People freaked out. They stayed there and were just loitering. And police were telling people, you need to leave. This is like unlawful. Like unlawful gathering. Because the mall is closed. The mall is closed. No, nothing is open. They're just there. What were you doing? I parked the car with my best friend and we slept in the car. Until until, um, I think I probably slept until like like four or five and then got back in line. In the morning. In the morning. There were significantly less people because I think a lot of people just overslept or they went home and and their alarm didn't ring or whatever. And uh, we're standing in line. But the problem is in San Anita there are several sneaker shops. So basically... They were letting people in, but then it's a mad dash. But you, are all the
0: sneaker shops in that mall selling this shoe, or is it just one? From what I can recall, there was
1: a Champs and a Foot Locker and a Finish Line. Okay. So there were three stores. That was a Finish Line guy. Yeah. <laughs> and they were all located in different parts of the mall. So you had to just choose, and you hoped that you chose right. Basically, as soon as the cops opened the doors, there's just a mad dash. People just like pushing and shoving and literally people booking it as fast as they could, sprinting as fast as they could to whatever store that they felt like they could get their pairs at. Where did you go? I went to Champs. Okay. I got the last pair, literally the last pair. So I walked in and they had, re. I think the... Think it ultimately dropped at like eight a.m. It was maybe like the five hundredth or so person in line. Wow, that's like pretty deep in line. It's deep, and I got so lucky. It was just pure luck because all the other sneakers stores had shuttered their they they pulled down the grates. Sure, it was it was basically over. And then I see, me and this other dude that like was just behind me in line. Saw that champs still had it kind of cracked open. Literally, we're on the second level and champs on the first level. I literally yelled down to them, yo, you got any sizes left? And they're like, yeah. This so hesitantly, like kind of looked around. I was like, yeah. (laughs) And I booked it. Me and this other dude, we just booked it down. Like, you know, there's the escalators. We ran down the escalators. Why were you on the second floor, though? Because we went to finish line. Oh,
0: so you went to finish line first, yeah, and they were sold out, yeah, and then you went to champs. They we went to
1: champs, okay. And so you go in. I go in, and they're like, "We have an eight and a half and an eight left, and I'm a nine and a half, ten. I'm like, fuck it, I'm a. I'll take the eight and a half. Yeah, just done. And they're like, okay, but you buy one pair of shoes. They only allowed you to buy one pair. Okay, at that time, usually the back then the protocol was two per. Right? Okay. So you get two per person. But if you knew the store manager, and this is how you could get four pairs, right? Sure. You knew the store manager, you loop back in line. Got it. Kind of you kinda just loiter there until everyone kinda yeah. gets their stuff, and then you loop back in line and get those second two pairs. So you buy the one eight and a half pair. Buy the eight and a half pair, immediately go, go to Nike Talk. Hey, eight and a half San Diego mall meetup. This other dude had won a raffle at it's another local LA sneaker shop. He won a raffle and he hits me and is like, I got nine and a half. I need eight and a half. I was like, okay, great. Just so happens. Just so happens. Now, you have to be super skeptical about that because, you know, these are commodities, right? The Jordan 11 at that point was reselling for um, at least
0: $300. And you bought it for the same thing, 172 I
1: think the 11s at that point in time were 180 Okay. Plus tax. I don't exactly remember, but I do remember that they were slightly more expensive than the than the other Jordans. The Jordan 1s were like 130. So yeah. they were a little bit lower and then your sort of mid-tier Jordans were just the standard 160. Um you know, it's dicey to meet up with these people in person. So what always happens or what the the safe way to exchange sneakers or to sell sneakers in person is always you meet at a bank and you meet during business hours at a bank if someone is like oh meet me at Walmart at 9pm you know you're gonna get robbed that's just like straight up just don't do that right or like some people would try to pull one over you and like try to run game on you be like oh meet at uh, Bank of America at 9pm right no way no way man like absolutely not (laughs) you need to go there during business hours because it's convenient and it's safe so it basically facilitates uh the transaction because you don't want to carry a lot of money around with you you pull the money out from the atm you do the exchange in front of security guards camera and if something happens you have everything you need to be able to make sure that you know you can press charges or whatever right so anyways I meet this dude. For whatever reason, I wanted this sneaker so badly. We go to the Washington Mutual on, I think it was on Valley Boulevard at uh, 7 p.m. So and it's I, closed? It's closed. And I'm like, fuck. All right. But gotta, you really want these shoes? Yeah. I'm like, all right, I got to bring up my homeboys. So we get there and I pull up in my Toyota Camry. And the only other car seen in the uh, in the lot is uh a full-on tinted BMW <laughs> i like, some like I'm gonna get run up on like uh, <laughs> god damn it I get out of the car and he, he sees me and he gets out of the car and literally we locked eyes yeah and, Im- and, it was, and it was this Asian guy yeah. and immediately there was just like because like he had brought friends in his car as well and i was my homies just in case something went down that's amazing and so we're just like oh okay nothing's gonna happen we're all good like you're just a rich asian kid right and i'm just a regular asian kid like we're not gonna kill each other we're not gonna rob each other over some sneakers it's all good he was just like a nerdy aging guy with the glasses. Sure. Like immediately just like this exhale. Sure. That's, an, am- that's an amazing story. <laughs> Let's
0: get into the transactional yeah. economic stuff in it. So <clears throat> when did you realize that flipping sneakers was something of interest for you?
1: Yeah. So it goes back to growing up with a lot of money. You, you know not you want the sneakers because you want to play ball on them. You want to just have it just a stun on your friends and stuff. So very quickly, you realize that this is a commodity. And if you can cop multiple pairs, you can resell them at an elevated price to basically offset the cost of your own. Right. And so stores have a two per policy. But if you knew the store manager, you could always loop back and grab a second two pairs. Right. And so the economics breakdown is $172. That's including tax MSRP, and you would immediately be able to resell it for anywhere from two hundred and forty to about three hundred and twenty. So let's just call it like two hundred and eighty. Just split it in the medium, uh, in the middle. That's basically immediately a one hundred dollar markup, right? And, and that was
0: because they were limited.
1: Yeah, super scarce. This is basically before e-com was really a thing, right? right? So this is like 2006, 2007, 2008, or like the very early days of, of e-com, where you were restricted to your geography. Some kid in rural Illinois is just not going to have access to these shoes. But then eBay comes along and takes the ability to acquire these shoes to at least a national scale, if not an international scale. right? And so all of a sudden you have people who are in these uh, regions that just don't get the shoes coming onto eBay and looking for them on eBay. And you're basically upcharging them for the commodity. Right. It's basic arbitrage, right? They're not able to access the supply. You have access to the supply, and you just charge them a service fee. And you're able to charge
0: them more than what you would charge regionally because these people actually have no access whatsoever?
1: On the Nike Talk forums, sometimes you were able to finesse that. But once eBay became the main facilitation of like everyone had access. Sneakers, everyone had access to it, so it didn't really matter. The reason why you go into a flight club today, or if you go into like stadium, a stadium Goods takes a smaller cut, but like GOAT or StockX or whatever, they take 20% right off the top of top line revenue. And the reason they did that is because the closest comp used to come from PayPal fees plus eBay fees, right? So eBay, depending on how big of a seller you were and how verified you were, anywhere from 11 to 15%, let's just call it, they took 15% off the top. Then with PayPal, they took 4% of the transaction fee. So basically, your 20% just evaporates. Right. right. So they take 20% off the top. We'll just make it a round number, right? Let's just say 300 to 300, sure. 20% is 60 bucks, right? So you're 240. So $172, $170, just call it 240, 70 bucks a shoe, right? If you sell three pairs, that's 210. So you basically have your pair for free plus a little bit of pocket money. You come out on top. It's it's great. But for you to be able to buy four pairs of shoes, as you said you didn't have that much money in your
0: pocket. How are you able to actually buy four pairs of shoes in high school? Yeah, you just got to float that on a credit card. Uh, yeah. And you had a credit card in high school. Yeah, it's
1: a practicing fiscal responsibility, you know, with the parents and stuff. The best part about it is I think a lot of people don't realize, but if you can pay off the float, no interest charges, it's free money. When does it click in your head that you can start making more money from this? So it was a kind of a really serendipitous confluence of a couple different factors. I was making some pocket change and getting my pairs of shoes for free until about 2008, let's call it. Then I get into college, going to NYU. I got roughly like an 80% scholarship, but 80% of... $60,000 $60,000 is 20% of $60,000 is still a lot of yeah. money. All of a sudden, I have this twenty dollars to $30,000 bill every year, including tuition, housing, and just living in New York City, right, which is expensive. So I got to find a way to pay for all of this because my parents don't got to of money. So I got to figure out a way to hustle and, and, and get the bread. So at that point... This is now the point in time where e-com goes from like e-com 1.0 to like e-com 1.5 or e-com 2.0, whatever yeah. you want to call it. But it's basically the transition point between when e-com is traditionally written in HTML, CSS. All of a sudden, there's a switch over to JavaScript. And it was just a hacker's paradise because... JavaScript is so robust, there's a thing called the DOM node. If you, have a, you set up a, spin up a server using Cloudflare or whatever, and you can just mercilessly ping that DOM node, and it would return a whole bunch of different information. Like, you could ping Footlocker or Foot Action, their sites, and return entire stocks of size runs.
0: And, and so when you say ping, you're essentially scraping data from their site? You're
1: hitting their server, with a specific request, and that server returns the answer to that request. You're asking (laughs) it a question, and then it gives you the answer. That's amazing. It's like the computers are talking
0: amongst each other. Yeah, that's right. And the people don't want that information out.
1: Well, they had exposed something that they didn't realize that they were exposing, right? Nor did they care for a very long time until like consumer backlash finally caught up to a lot of these (laughs) sites and started implementing. And so what did you do here? You saw this opening and what did you do? So basically I built what in common vernacular was called a bot. I was part of the first wave of bot creators, I think is is the right way to think about it. So basically what you could do is there are were, there were these testing scripts. Basically it's for web testing. And if you go into like a Chrome browser and you inspect elements, you can get the CSS and HTML and sort of the JavaScript elements, and then you could then use that to write a pathway that would allow you to mimic human interaction with a website, but you can do it in microseconds instead of like taking a second to click, process the information, whatever, right? So you're basically interfacing with the site as quickly as machines do as opposed to a human. What did that allow you to do? Oh
0: what advantage gosh.
1: did it give you over everybody else? It just it, it just allowed you to just cut the line. It was a fucking cheat code. I could get thousands of pairs just as soon as they dropped, boom. And did you actually
0: get thousands of pairs?
1: Yeah, and uh, my parents got real mad at me. <laughs> do you remember?
0: Was it different bunch of pairs or was there a specific shoe where you got thousands of pairs
1: that you remember and it got delivered to your house? The way that I ramped up was not, I didn't immediately get thousands of pairs. So basically what I did was I I had to test this with smaller launches or smaller releases to actually make sure it worked. I was kind of stress testing as I went. So I started off with five or six pairs, and then the next drop I would increase to 20 or so, and then maybe 100, and then hundreds.
0: And these were still coming to your house? And so they would come to your house, and then you would, what, sell them on eBay and then ship them to somebody? Exactly. I would
1: sell them on eBay, ship them to somebody, and then the problem with that is twofold. One is you incur a ton of inventory risk, which basically you just have to hold the inventory and hope that it sells, right? Otherwise, you're not going to be able to pay off the float on your credit card, or you lose money eats into your margins. The second problem is you then have to pay for shipping out. So, to the, you know, since you're reselling it, you own the shoe now, then you have to pay for shipping on eBay. A couple ways around it you could defer the cost over to the consumer. So, the person who wanted to buy your shoes, you could just say flat rate $5, $15, $20, whatever. Or they could just pay it at cost. But again, that comes off your top line, right? Top line revenue. So, what I started doing because my parents got my grandma yelled at me, and she was like, "Are you opening up a sneaker store? What are you doing?" Just because they got tired of seeing these like huge UBS deliveries. Where would you keep these? Just in my house, like like, in the garage or in your room, or it started off in my room, and then then I couldn't walk around in my room anymore. So then I so then I moved it to the garage, (laughs) and that's when your parents were your grandmother was like, like this is out of control. What are you doing?" So. Then I started to think, all right, what are some ways that I can defer this or eliminate this inventory risk? So, Because the risk there is that you have now thousands of pairs
0: of shoes. If you don't move them quick enough, the value could go down, and you're just stuck with these shoes. That's right. And then you have all this debt on your credit card that you need to pay off. That's right. And then you're just you could just be in a shitload of trouble. That's correct. And you're in high school. Yeah. And bad. you have college to pay for.
1: Exactly. Bad. So the, the, this, the fix was instead of reselling, you're pre-selling. And this concept is – I did not invent this concept. I don't want anyone to think that I invented pre-selling. It was an artifact of Nike Talk and an artifact of the relationships that you would build with store managers back when this was still like a lineup game. Basically, people with really good relationships with the store managers always had, could secure their pairs. They always knew, all right, I'm gonna get two 11s, two nine and a halfs, two tens, you know, three sevens, etc. And because they they knew that those pairs were guaranteed to them, they could pre sell at an even higher rate because you're basically securing your pair before everybody else has to fight for them and you have to pay a premium for that. And so now what I previously would resell from you know, 240 to like 280 could now resell from like 280 to 320, sometimes 350, right? So you it's a huge increase in margin in terms of percentage point basis, but the most important thing was you defer the inventory. You just eliminate inventory risk because you have the demand before you even acquire the product. And on top of that, the icing on the cake is now I defer the shipping costs directly over to Nike, into Foot Locker, into Foot Action, because what I would do is the buyers who would pre, you know, pre-buy my stock would have their first name, last name, whatever, in their address, and I would just wrote a quick script that pulled all of their personal information and then just that's where it would get shipped to.
0: And so basically through hacking the system, you've – created the ability to buy numerous pairs of shoes pre-sell them before you even bought them and then have them shipped for you so no more hundreds of pairs of shoes at no your parents more. place yeah. and you're just collecting money yeah basically how much money are you accumulating at this point
1: i had accumulated enough to pay for one year of
0: NYU and how did that feel like this is the most money you've ever had did you buy anything
1: No. The looming specter of tens of thousands of dollars of debt was uh, frightening. So you're responsible. (laughs) I wasn't like super responsible. I like, you know, had disposable income. I had fun living in New York, but I I didn't buy a car. And, And you were doing this throughout college. Yeah, for sure. All throughout college. Now, then this is the ultimate problem with arbitrage, A good thing never, ever lasts forever. And within a year or two, so fast, people got savvy to this. And even as Jordan brand and Nike started to increase the supply of the shoes from not that much to like all the way up to, you know, the the big reference point, I think for me was the Columbia 11s, the all white 11s with the Jumpman logo in the Carolina blue. They released a million pairs of those. And that would be a would that be considered a lot? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> yeah. a lot, right? That I think up until that point was the most pair of shoes that they had ever manufactured for Jordans, dropping at one time. That was kind of the rumor going on. I was like, oh, a, a million pairs of of Jordan Eleven. Grade. And
0: that would mean that everyone potentially has a shot at getting this pair, which makes you irrelevant at this point. Well,
1: right. Theoretically, if bots weren't buying up hundreds of pairs. That's true. And (laughs) they were. And they were. Right. Um, But, you know, so the way that it should have worked was increased competition in the space should mean that the number of pairs you can secure would go down. They weren't. They were, well, they went down a little bit, but they were staying steady-ish for about two or three years so until 2011 2012 ish they were still hanging steady i was able to get mid hundred. sometimes i got really lucky i would get like a thousand or so pairs the reason why you don't see a dip in your supply is because they're just f- starting to flood the market with pairs they're increasing pairs, their supply increasing the supply was it re- as a result of all this that was going on I think it was, so, I mean, I obviously can't speak for Nike, but my hypothesis is that they very strategically implemented the, they probably had like a five to 10 year revenue plan, right? We're going to start by restricting the shit out of these really coveted models, hunkering down, not releasing a bunch of bullshit colorways, really focusing on like the moments, right? So like Jordan 4, Black cements, Jordan 4 white cements, Jordan 3 black cements, Jordan 3 white cements. You know, you have like your iconic colorways of certain silhouettes and certain models and you just hunker down and sell the shit out of those and then slowly ratchet up the supply where people are still in this scarcity mindset where I can't get this, I need to line up or I need to use a bot. And so it was still selling out. I think it was a really smart move by Nike to to basically get people hooked to the scarcity
0: and so what they're doing is is that they're still trying to grow as a company so they're increasing the supply but they're doing it step by step in order to create the hype that they've been used to but they still want to take advantage of the increased volume
1: of sales that they could be doing correct yeah so it wasn't a it wasn't like an immediate ramp up it was a real slow burn over a long period of time i i I generally don't think highly of corporations, but I I really do think that this is a long-term calculated plan by Nike at a at a corporate level. That's
0: it's really interesting. And then the ones that they would drop like the super and can you describe that I think you said there's like three like editions?
1: Yeah, yeah. So you have different tiers, right? So the lowest tier is called the GRs, just general releases. Every sneaker shop basically gets them. And all the foot lockers and the foot actions or whatever will get them. Then you have the QSs, the quick strikes, or the SEs, the special editions. And those, sometimes the rules are a little bit different, but basically the account has to have a, a t- it's called a Nike tier zero account. Which means that you push enough product or you sell well enough on the other items that now you get the exclusive stuff. Right? You sell enough GRs and you get the exclusive stuff. Yeah. And then you have the highest level, which is the P's, the player editions. And they're basically one-offs, like, made specifically for players. Got like, it. DeMar DeRozan has, like, all, you know, he's been a, a Nike athlete for forever. And he always wears player editions of the Kobe's. This is sort of extended out into, like, they're not PE's because he's not a player. But, like, DJ Khaled has the, the, the most famously like, the Jordan 3's.
0: So what started happening for you? So now you're going from like making all this bank. And, no then, one's and ca-
1: then spending it and then right back into NYU's hands. Right
0: back into <laughs> NYU's hands. And uh, when does it start changing for you?
1: Like when do you start noticing a difference? So this was roughly around 2013, 2014-ish. So I just graduated from college. At this point, it was basically steady state for me. I didn't have to put too much time into it. Uh, but i was seeing some pretty steady declines in both stock and revenue yeah so the amount of pairs that i was able to secure and then obviously that leads to a decrease in top line revenue and basically what started happening was the sites got savvy to the arbitrage that was happening and the sort of the hacky hack together bots that were that were purchasing a lot of inventory and so they started instituting things like captcha or recaptcha and even to this day it's basically undefeated you could spin up some servers and use some you know russian captcha beating technology and you'd still only have hit rates of like 20% success it's really low success rates so once they started restricting bots and stock that way i basically knew that the upkeep of this was going to take up a lot of my time. And, you know, at that point, I, you know, was out of school. Uh, you paid for it. Paid for it. At that point was uh, now at IBM Watson. had a full-time, you know, career. I just didn't want to maintain. The, the upkeep was just way too much for the amount of money that was coming in.
0: Did you but, shut it down?
1: It just like gradually phased out. In its heyday, maybe a thousand, then to hundreds, then to hundred, then to like dozens. Yeah, yeah. And then I think one day I checked and it was like, oh, I got three pairs. It's like, oh, great. Yeah, it's time to just, it's time to shut it down.
0: And you did well. You got through school.
1: Yeah, it served its purpose.
0: Do you remember the most money made off a single pair, or maybe you have a pair now that's worth a lot more?
1: I do. I have a pretty big collection. I just basically collect now. I can tell you the one of the biggest regrets sure. that I ever had. I was sitting in my dorm room at NYU and this was the very first time that the Nike mags dropped. These are the Back to the Future shoes. Yeah, Back to the Future shoes. Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox. Yeah, He has Parkinson's. Yeah. So it was through his foundation it was to benefit Parkinson's. On eBay they had an auction and I don't remember exactly how many pairs of shoes that they auctioned off but each shoe basically at the end of the auction averaged out to about three grand per shoe literally not 30 minutes later $15,000 was the average price of the resale of that (laughs) shoe
0: (laughs) so people were going and basically donating money to the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Correct. <laughs> getting the shoe. Correct. And then flipping it,
1: 15, making correct. their charitable donation back plus. Correct. $15,000. That was that was just like for the first couple of weeks. That shoe now, I think, like I've walked by it a few times in Flight Club. I think it's like $60,000 wow. now. Wow. And that's because how limited it is. Yeah. I think... Th- I think there were like two or three hundred pairs. It was super. That's it. That's it. There were not that many pairs of the very first. This is the very first time. The the ones that you got through eBay, not when they retroed it. The original release. Yeah, that's right. What's the most expensive shoe you think now? You always hear like colloquially that the the M and M fours or the undefeated fours. Are the most expensive. It's like sixty or eighty or however many thousands of dollars. And, and is that expensive.
0: again just because scarcity and it's M M&M? and M? Like what was it about that
1: shoe? So the undefeated Jordan fours were one of the very first sneaker shop plus Jordan silhouette collaborations. Plus, it's a beautiful shoe. It's this olive green. It's an amazing shoe, and it's just so rare. There just aren't that many pairs around. The M and Ms were made for him, right? right? The equivalent of a, a, P, a player edition. Sure. So, like, those kind of are the two... When you think of, like, most expensive sneakers, those immediately pop.
0: Did um, you ever lose money on a single pair? Was there, was there one that just didn't work?
1: No. I got out of the game before resellers were squeezed on their margins. And tell me more about that. What happened? So, as Nike started to flood the market, you're basically eliminating the problem of scarcity. So more people have access, and because of that, you can just charge less on the arbitrage. And so eventually, you get to a point where your resell is less than 20% more than MSRP. You're losing money on every pair that you buy, basically unless you have some sort of homie discount or you're buying in bulk from somebody else or you know there's a bunch of other ways to skim off the top.
0: And so explain that you're bu- so you're buying the retail, the MSRP. Yeah. And then you're going on are you talking about these marketplaces now? Stock like StockX, goat, goat,
1: whatever and you sell them for, you know, and for some shoes it really is like your margins are net, you're losing 20, 30 bucks on them. Right, because after their cut and then
0: what else are you paying on that? Like just your time and then shipping and all that?
1: No, no. Like a, a great example, like the Yeezys now. It's a current Yeezys, like the 350s. You don't make that much money reselling them anymore. MSRP, I think, is like 220 plus tax. And maybe you sell them at Flight Club for like 240, 260. After that 20% cut, you're either losing money or you're making like a couple bucks per shoe.
0: And you mentioned to me Adidas caught on to that, right? Because when the Yeezys came out limited and people were buying for like, what was it, 200 bucks and selling for like $3,000?
1: Yeah, Adidas, I think, is the first company. Well, I mean, it's really just Adidas and and Nike. Nike. But Adidas really has figured out that perfect point of equilibrium where they have enough supply that it still sells out completely. It might take a day or two, but completely sold out while also being able to recoup all of the margin from resellers, making it basically doesn't make sense to resell that shoe. And the reason they could do that is because they have Kanye as a personality. His brand cachet with the whole Yeezy brand is so high that they're basically – able to tap into the hype of him to sell sneakers while saturating the market it's pretty brilliant people are looking at this and they're saying i should buy sneakers as an investment what would you say to that person anytime you're like on the downside of the bubble just don't do it i mean it's difficult now right like you're just not able to acquire the volume that you were able to before just because there's so many different restrictions and guardrails that have been put in place now If you can get access to like the more rare things. So the way that Nike has kind of combated this oversaturation of general release shoes is to maintain this super high tier of the quick strikes and special editions, et cetera.
0: An example would that be recent All-Star Game release of the Jordan-Virgil
1: collaboration? Yes, so the Jordan 5s. Yes. Yeah, the Off-White, exactly. So basically, whatever Virgil touches with the Off-White brand, like 5Xs or 6Xs in terms of value immediately because of of the scarcity.
0: And so how do you think about now, this has become a lot more mainstream because of the rise of GOAT, StockX, Stadium Goods' as marketplace. They've all raised collectively in the hundreds of millions of dollars. What are the pros of them existing? And then what is the con? What do you think about this whole space?
1: My stance on this has shifted over time. And maybe just because I'm a salty ex-reseller. I don't know. (laughs) 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 I think they're... Respectfully. I really think that it's changed the game in, in a fundamentally bad way. You see a lot of the old heads or a lot of these dudes that... Really, associated specific memories to certain shoes, either watching Jordan play or whatever, or even just like our historians of the game and are are associated, even though they've never firsthand seen it, are associating these these shoes with these iconic moments. Nowadays, you just see like rich Upper East Side white kids walking around in a full off-white jumpsuit or wearing just the most outlandish sneakers walking around and they have no idea what the history is all they know is that like i can resell these shoes for a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars or whatever
0: and was there something about the culture that you were a part of did you
1: recognize certain demographics i mean with the sneaker subculture it's always been you know mostly people of color of the culture around the culture very famously, Jordan got this huge piece of backlash for saying Republicans buy sneakers, too, right? Like, it's like, you know, he was really lambasted for that statement. There used to always just be this, like, understanding. If you complimented someone's kicks or you recognized someone's kicks, that could always kind of get you out of a bad situation. Like, oh, y'all, dope shoes, bro. Like, I got a pair at home, too. Or, like, you know, where'd you get those or whatever. And there was always that kind of instant camaraderie, which is like, oh, yeah, okay, like he might not mess with me now because, like, we got this thing in common. That doesn't really exist anymore. Look, StockX and GOAT and these marketplaces exist because of the scarcity that Nike and Adidas implemented, right? They're just profiting off of the reality of capitalism. There's nothing intrinsically wrong or bad about them, but it has fundamentally changed the game in a way from something that I think is more personal to a pure commodity play, a complete commodification of memories of a product. But there
0: was a time where you took advantage of that. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. You're almost like a rehabilitated collector because now you're a collector again.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a history repeats itself kind of thing. Or you know, I don't really, I don't, I I don't resell anymore. That's like not what I do now. Every sneaker I buy, I just kind of enjoy them and just have them in my collection. And how many pairs of shoes do you have? Uh, A lot. (laughs) I have like over two hundred pairs. And I think
0: part of the fact that you're always been, sure, you found an opportunity where you had to pay for college and stuff, and you got into that game. It didn't take away from the fact that you actually love these sneakers. You're part of that culture. And because of that, your collection is probably worth a pretty penny now.
1: Like, I'm not trying to get robbed, but I do have insurance on my apartment. (laughs) Is there a pair that you would never sell? Yeah. I have a couple pairs. So, I was at IBM Watson at the time. And... I think it might have been the 20th anniversary. It might have been the 20th anniversary. I don't exactly remember what the event around it was. But I would just randomly check Twitter. So I was at Watson 51 Astor Place uh, in New York. I just randomly was on Twitter. I had no business. being. I, I don't even use Twitter. I was just on it randomly. And I just see shock drop. No press, no media, nothing. And it was in Soho. It was next to what now is like the Ray-Ban store and Jordan one satins shock drop. We'd all in the sneaker community kind of been following when this shoe would release is the Jordan one breads, but the upper was all satin and gold tip laces. Beautiful shoe. I ran out of that office as fast as I could and got in line and I, probably was one of the first people to have seen it. I was already like the 200th person in line. And at one point uh, I was in line for probably about an hour and a half, close to two hours. At one point I turned my head and it was around the block. Like I couldn't see the end of the line anymore. And this is, these are like long Soho streets, right? Avenue equivalents, basically. I was lucky enough. I was with my buddy and I got two pairs of these, so there's only five hundred and one of these ever made.
0: Five hundred and one pair.
1: At least the very first sure. the very first drop of this of the bread satins. But I, I managed to get my hands on two of them. So I'll never sell those. And you have both of them? I have two, yeah. Do you wear them? No way. No way. <laughs> but you know, the poor immigrant in me is always just like, man, like it's like I'm wearing two thousand dollars on my feet. Yeah. As soon as I step out of the building. I just every with the first step I take, I've just lost five hundred dollars. I just just that mentality. I just can't get over that mentality.
0: And what would you say to someone who's like, who thinks the like
1: they want to get into the reselling game now? What would you tell them? You better be able to do volume, right? So profitability. The the two drivers of profitability are either super high margins. Or just a ton of volume you're just churning through volume you have to find a way to get now thousands tens of thousands of pairs to achieve the kinds of profitability and profit margins that we were getting with like 500 600 pairs back in the day it's just your your margins are getting squeezed so so much that it does like uh, the Jordan 12 playoffs I think I sold my pair for like four fifty. Like if they retroed now-ish, you'd maybe make like five or ten bucks on them. Like it's just not a... and so and previously it was it's four fifty with obviously the sure. like, 20% fee, you know. So uh $90 off the top, but you're still making like two, three hundred dollars.
0: My last two questions. Can you off the top of your head just blurt out either your favorite releases? or your like top five
1: shoes? Top five, top five, obviously Jordan one, Breads. I've probably collected over 20 or so of those, of that pair uh, over the years. Kobe six, Grinches, absolutely. Jordan three, Black Cements. Jordan seven, Bordeaux. That's like a super slept on shoe. I personally love them. The sneaker community at large uh, probably will skewer me for this. <laughs> And then, gosh, I think for my fifth pair, I'm gonna have to go with the Yeezy red Octobers. That's always been like a Grail shoe for me. I'm glad it was not like a like thank God a no
0: Jordan shoe got in that mix, <laughs> but I mean it you know it's interesting, like as a kid, my mom was obsessed with Jordan, yeah, and she made me buy. A pair of shoes, and I asked you this before. She thinks she thinks I'm an idiot now because like I missed out on the whole like yeah. thing because I didn't really understand what was going on. But tell her what the shoe is. There any value to the shoe? It's the the Jordan Tens with the accomplishments on the bottom. Either Chicago's and it's it's like black suede or gray suede.
1: Uh, black suede, gray suede. Oh, uh, how long ago was 1996? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Jordan 10s are, like, not that great of a silhouette. Sorry, Mom. (laughs) Not a lot of resale value there. Ken,
0: this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on and chatting with us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Talk Money Uncut. I hope you learned as much as I did. Remember, you can discuss this topic along with others on our Circle Group, which is exclusive to your membership. For more information, just email me at mesh at thetalkmoney.com. Until next time.